You're listening to Everybody Pulls the Tarp, the go-to podcast for high performers. I'm Andrew Moses. Each week, you'll hear my thought-provoking conversations with Olympians, pro athletes, CEOs, elite coaches, best-selling authors, and other high performers to uncover their secrets to success. Get ready to be inspired each week when we talk about leadership, teamwork, work ethic, and more. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, everyone. This week, my guest is two-time NHL All-Star and former Washington Capitals star, Olaf Kolzik. Ole's NHL career spanned 17 seasons and recorded 303 career wins, becoming the first goalie in Washington Capitals team history to reach the 300 wins mark. He won the Vesna Trophy as the NHL's top goaltender for the 1999-2000 NHL season. Ole also represented Germany in two Winter Olympics. But Ole's talent on the ice is just part of his story. He's also known for his extraordinary work in the community and won the NHL's King Clancy Trophy in 2006 for leadership and humanitarian efforts. I had the opportunity to see the impact Ole had on the community on numerous occasions while we were both doing work many years ago for Autism Speaks. In 2007, I had the opportunity to attend a charity event Ole hosted. And I saw firsthand the passion and enthusiasm he has for leading by example and serving others. We recently caught up and I asked Ole about his career and the success secrets that helped him become one of the NHL's best, most consistent goaltenders. He talked about persisting through ups and downs early in his career, learning to channel his emotions and the impact of his unmatched work ethic. For Ole, he strived to be a goaltender who was always there for his teammates and a backstop in net who could lift up the team, no matter the circumstances. And it's no different for Ole when it comes to his work in the community helping others and supporting causes he's passionate about. He is always there to lift others up. All of us have people, teams, and communities that count on us. And my conversation with Ole is a great reminder that every single one of us has the power to make a difference. So, Let's pull the tarp and get straight to Ole the Goalie, two-time NHL All-Star, Olaf Kolzig. It's great to have you. I can't wait to dig into your career on and off the ice, the great work you do in the community. But where I want to begin, I want to go way back. You're a German citizen. You were born in South Africa. How did you get into hockey? (laughs) Well, you can even expand on that. I'm German, but born in South Africa, grew up in Canada and works in the U.S. So a buddy of mine turned the phrase German-Africadian. Uh, a few years ago. So, well, my parents were European and um, they were in the hotel business. So that's how we ended up in, in in South Africa through getting transferred. My dad ended up going to Edmonton when I was about four years old. And, you know, when you're in Canada, that's kind of, that's kind of the thing to do. And so my dad got me into it. Uh, you know, first I developed or uh, learned how to skate and then uh, he got me into some organized hockey. So how quickly did you get involved in the goalie position? What was involved with that? Well, so that's uh, that's actually kind of a funny story. So the first about the first six seven years of playing organized hockey, I was a positional player. I was defenseman forward. Learned how to skate. Back then, everybody had to play uh, goal at least one game. And in Edmonton, you learn to play hockey in outdoor rinks. And if anybody knows their geography, it gets pretty cold in Edmonton in the wintertime. And so it was my turn to play net. And I remember it was a really really cold night. And this. Uh, kid on the opposite team had a breakaway 
well, there was no way that I was going to get hit with the puck. So I actually went, skated behind the net and let the guy just basically score in an empty net. It's kind of ironic that I ended up having a pretty good uh, NHL career. But again, when I was 10 years old, a goalie didn't show up for a game. I put the pads on. I ended up getting a shutout in that game. And I guess the rest is history. I really kind of fell in love with, with the position. And, um, and then obviously, as time went on, you know, the goalie position, you basically, you know, you could establish your own type of personality with the paint job on your mask, uh, with the different, uh, you know, designs you can do with your equipment. And so I kind of fell in love with it. What was it about it that you felt like that? I mean, you talked about some of the things there, right? The, the ability to bring some of your own character to make it your own, style it the way you wanted to style it. What else really drew you to that position? I think the fact that you could have, you know, when you get success, like I said, in that first game, when I got the shutout and you had everybody pat you on the back and tell you how great you were and, and not that, you know, you look for validation or, or all these people telling you how great you are. It was more that you could have an impact on the game. And and I love that. I love being able to, to steal games when maybe our team wasn't playing the best. I just love that feeling that I had, you know, to take over a game. And yeah, I mean, sometimes obviously it doesn't work out. You have bad nights too, where, you know, you don't last the first period and you're sitting on the bench watching the rest of it. But for the most part, I love that challenge of going in there and, and making a difference. How did you go about developing and honing your craft as a goaltender? Because I would imagine back then there wasn't as much specialization. There wasn't necessarily the avenues and angles to go get the specialized coaching that kids can get today in the position. Talk about that for a minute. How did you as a kid go about really honing your craft? I mean, it really, it was just a, uh, like you see the goalies now, they're, they're almost all play the same way. And then obviously that has to do with, they've gotten coaching now, they can go on YouTube. The internet has been huge for athletes nowadays. But back then, you know, you watch Talking Night in Canada one day a week. And for me, I love Ron Hextall. I love Patrick Waugh. And so you try to model your game around those guys. I was emotional like Hextall. I was big like Hextall. But I like the way that Patrick Waugh played. And so I tried to, you know, I tried to work on that in practice. And, you know, I would get help every once in a while from, uh, you know, we'd have a guest goalie coach or, or a guy that, that's helping out with a team that played goal. And so you, you'd, you would work on it that way. But the position back then was totally different. You just tried to stop the puck no matter what. I mean, you could be a, you try to make saves as a soccer goalie or you would, you know, a kick save, which is totally absurd when you, when you look back at it. But you just tried anything and everything to, to try to stop the puck. And, and because of that, it took me a little longer to make it to the NHL because I, I would sometimes, like I said, I wore my emotions on my sleeve and I would give up a bad goal and it would affect me the rest of the game. And, and so I had to develop a different mentality. I had to become emotionally and mentally stronger. And it wasn't until I got Dave Pryor as a full-time goalie coach in Washington that I really was able to channel my emotions, have more of a consistent style. And because it, in a, any pro athlete to tell you, consistency is the key to success. And until I had that proper coaching and not only physically, but mentally, I would have probably never had the career I did. But because I finally got that specialized coaching and was able to, to channel things and become more consistent, my game. And my career took off. Let's talk about that for a second, Oli. So you talked about Washington. You, you were drafted by the Capitals in the first round of the 1989 
NHL draft, 19th overall. But like you said, it, it took some time. You didn't achieve overnight success and step right into a, a starting role in Washington. You, you shuttled back and forth to the minor leagues a little bit. And it took a few years for you to take that starter role. You mentioned the mental side of the game there. You talked about some physical aspects. What was it over those few years that was the biggest priority for you? Well, I I think my perseverance really was the reason I was able to stay on as long as I did. My belief in myself. But the other, the the big thing, and and it probably wouldn't help or work in today's game, but there was a lack of a, a salary cap. So I was fortunate to be with an organization that was patient with me. I, I actually had success early on. I made the caps out of my very first training camp as a 19-year-old, which you know rarely happened back then, especially for a goalie. And I stuck around with the team for a month. I had my ups and downs, but you know, at the end of that month, it was it was determined that I needed to go back to junior. And when I came back to junior, it wasn't that I came back with the wrong attitude or a bad attitude. It was just that I came back thinking that, hey, I'd made the NHL the top league in the world. I should be able to come back down here and dominate. But you don't realize that the NHL has the best players in the world. And that not only offensively, but defensively. And so the guys in front of you, they all know how to do their job perfectly. And that's not the case when you come back to junior. And so I came back and, you know, I had guys obviously that made mistakes. And and as a result, I couldn't play the way I did in Washington. And I didn't have success for the first few months when I came back. And so it took me a while to... Thinking going into next training camp, I thought, okay, well, I made I made the caps last year. It should be a lock for me to make the caps this year. And you don't realize how hard it is. It's one thing to get your foot in the door and get an NHL game, but it's something totally different to be able to stay there and not make it one game, but make it a career. And that's the thing I had to learn. It wasn't one game or one practice. I mean, it was it was a season. It was two seasons. And so I had to develop that, like I talked earlier about that consistency and the mindset. And it took me a little time to get that together. But even when I did that, then I had these uh, other guys that got drafted years after me that were able to make that jump sooner. And so now not only did I have to battle my own emotions and then all other things, I had to battle the guys that were, that were younger, that were, that were more consistent. And so it was a roller coaster. And I mean, there were times I, I thought maybe this is it for me. I, I should move on, maybe go back to school. But I still felt because I was playing with these guys day to day, I would see how they practice. I would see how they worked out. And, and they didn't have the drive I did. They didn't have the, the work ethic I did. They might have had the connection up in the head a little bit quicker than I did, but they just didn't have that drive and, and, and work ethic. And so I just I said to myself, just be patient, continue to do what you're doing, and it's going to happen. And then in, uh, in 1997, Bill Ranford was a starter, and he got hurt in the first period of the first game that year in Toronto. And I went in, and and Toronto had not been my best place over my career, so I was battling some demons going into that game. But I ended up just telling myself, "This is your opportunity," and I took the ball, ran with it, and the rest was history after that season. It sure was the 303 career wins, first goalie in Capitals team history to win 300 games. An NHL career that spans 17 years. We'll talk about that Vesna Trophy too in a little bit. I'm curious, how does a goaltender? I mean, how does anyone develop? You know, like what I call like a short memory. You have to be able to move on from mistakes and failures and challenges really quickly and live in the moment. How did you do that? Well, for me, I developed it off of a lot of failures. 
you know, it takes you a while to, like I said, I, I would dwell on, on bad goals. And after a while, you just tell yourself, hey, that's not working. Like at some point, you have to change. And I finally, when I'm trying to think the year that it was, it was 90, 92, 93 when I was in Rochester, New York, playing for the Rochester Americans. And I had gotten loaned out from Washington. We had another, another young guy that got drafted the same year I did, Byron Defoe, who was just coming out of junior. And they wanted us. And at the time, as a player, now that I'm on the other side of the door, you realize that every organization has a plan for a player. But as a player back then, you don't see that. And so when I got loaned out to another organization's minor league team, I thought, well, my career here in Washington's done. And so I, I went to, to Rochester with a chip on my shoulder. But I also went realizing that, okay, in order for me to continue with my career, I've got to step it up here mentally. And so I started reading books. And I started applying things to, you know, everything, practice, you know, my preparation before I go to the rink, at the game, during the game. I just started to develop these mental skills. And I had an unbelievable year. I had a breakout year for me. We ended up going to the finals. We upset probably one of the greatest teams ever in American League history in the Binghamton Rangers. And then we lost to Cape Breton in the finals. But as a result, you know, Washington came back to me and offered me a one-way contract and, and, and things started to turn for me. But yeah, it's, as an athlete, you have to go through adversity to become a better player. You know, I, I can look at uh, a goalie like uh, Matt Murray, Pittsburgh's organization came up, had two unbelievable years, won back-to-back Stanley Cups, and now he's struggling to stay in the NHL. I mean, he just got, he just got traded to Toronto, but there's a kid that, that had success early and adversity late and now he's he's having a tough time trying to get that form back from you know when he won the cup so for me it was success through failure i had to feel really low in order to build myself back up and then realize i don't want to feel that low again and so yeah it just uh it was just years and years of training the mind which is for a professional athlete is 90 percent of the game you see kids all the time that they get drafted and they're filled with talent, but because they don't have it between the years, they don't last long. Oli, you talked about the work ethic that you have that you could tell was different from people around you. Where did that come from? How did you identify that? Was that something that developed over time for you? Something that's always been a part of you? I think it's always been a part of me. No matter what I did when I was younger, I I would always strive to be the best. And like I said, maybe I wasn't the most talented at times or, you know, trying to do things, but I would be damned not to try to, to work as hard as I can to be, to be the best. I just had a competitive nature in me. I've had that ever since I was born. You know, unfortunately, that came with a bit of a temper, which I don't think my parents appreciated too much. But once you learn how to control your emotions and, and your emotions can really be a benefit to you. And I think that's, that was my biggest asset was I was passionate. I was driven. I was competitive. Obviously, for a goalie, I was big. And so until I got it between my ears, until I got that figured out, you know, it was always going to be a, a struggle to be consistent. But like I said, once I did figure that out, I became a very, very consistent player. You sure did. In 1999-2000, you win the Vesna Trophy, NHL's best goaltender. Was there something different going on that year? What clicked? Can you look back on that year and say, you know, there was something I was doing differently? There, it all just came together? Talk about that for a minute. It's funny. I don't even think that was my best year. I think 01, 02, or 02, 03 was probably even a better year for me. 
I really had a good team in front of me. And most guys will say it, it's a team sport and you're only as good as the guys in front of you. But obviously I had, I think I came out of training camp in a great frame of mind. I had a great start to the season. And when you start a season strong, you just automatically have that level of confidence. It, it's sometimes when you, when you come out of the gates a little slow and, and you start questioning yourself is when you try to, you know, it's when things can get a little, a little inconsistent. But I think I had such a strong start to the season. I had a great, great team in front of me. It was unfortunate we didn't carry it on into the playoffs. We didn't, I didn't have a very good playoff that year, which, which kind of soured the award for me a little bit. But it wasn't that I tried to do anything different. It wasn't that I had a different approach. I just say, I just think I had a great start to the season and it just snowballed. And, you know, as a result of the way I played, I think our team fed off that. And so we were really good as a team. It was just a very special year. But, but like I said, I think the year, two years later, I think I had a, a better year because I didn't have the team wasn't quite as strong in front of me as it was in 2000. And so I felt like I had a better year then, but regardless, you know, you don't need to be recognized by an award to realize you've played well. And, and as long as your teammates believe in you and, and the coaches believe in you, that's, that's the biggest thing. You talk about your teammates, you talk about the team there a little bit, obviously ice hockey, it's a, it's a team sport. Goaltender is somewhat of a, I guess, an individualized position. You're, as I think about it, you're somewhat separate from the team that, you know, you're not going through all the same drills. You're not going through all the same workouts. You're doing some different work on, on the side, but I always looked at you and, and saw a great leader, someone who could really rally the group. How did you reconcile, you know, being a leader with also someone who was, you know, obviously in a, in a very different position than the rest of the guys? I think I got that early on in 97 when I took over the, I took over the number one spot for Billy Ranford. Uh, we had a bunch of veterans on the team and they treated me like a veteran. It wasn't, uh, they didn't treat me like the young guy. They didn't treat me like uh, a rookie. They, you know, I knew the game pretty well. So I, you know, over a beer, we'd have conversations and, you know, they look at me like, oh, this goalie knows what he's talking about. And again, I, I was a very emotional player and I had a bit of a presence because I, you know, 6'3", 225 as a goalie back then was, was pretty big. And so if I didn't have a good period or if I didn't have a good game or like the guys would know it and they respected me for it. And so I think I, I developed confidence in being a leader because of how they looked at me and accepted me. And I felt like I would be heard when I said things. And I wasn't always a leader that would come in and give a rah-rah speech. Although there were times where I would be uh, pretty vocal in the room, but I think I led more by example going in and trying to lead that way. But it wasn't something that I expected to be. It wasn't something that I tried to be. It just kind of came natural. And, you know, when, when I said something or did something, people listened. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's something you can force. You either have it in you or you don't. Not only did you lead on the ice, Oli, but you were such a tremendous leader off the ice. Obviously, we, we talked about the recognition for all of your great leadership and humanitarian work. We talked a little bit before we got on here about some of the work you've done in the autism community. I live in the Washington, D.C. area now. People still talk about the work that you did in the community, the visits to the hospitals, the money that you donated places, the organizations that you supported. I'm curious, when you think about the work in the community and playing a a bigger role, a role bigger than hockey in, in the community. Where did that come from? And how did that all start to come together for you? That came natural. I, I, I was always a big believer that 
being an athlete, being fortunate to play a game, get paid very well for it. You know, we have a platform where we can make a difference. And I was always a big believer that being sick and being a kid shouldn't go hand in hand. As a team, when we first went to the Children's National Medical Center, I just absolutely fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the doctors, the nurses, the kids. Yeah, I mean, you want to see a definition of courage. You go to you go to a cancer unit, Children's National Medical Center, and walking in and seeing these kids, you know, they have a smile on, your, on their face when you walk in. They're battling life, life-threatening illnesses, and I just had a bad game. You know, it puts things into perspective. And knowing that, like I said, we have a platform that can make a difference. And my wife and I got hit with some hard news in, in 2002. You know, we found out our son had autism. And, you know, the first part of that nightmare was that we were told he has autism. Second, the, the second part of the nightmare is trying to figure out what to do, what path do we need to go down. And, and I, I use this analogy, but it's, it's two different things because one's life-threatening, the other isn't. When you have cancer, there's a protocol. Um, you know where to go, what to do. But with autism, there are so many different therapies out there, so many different pathways. And not every set of therapies or pathways works for each child. So you had, we had to figure out our own, our own pathway and what's going to work for our son. And, and so going through that, we wanted to uh, establish a foundation that would help families be able to navigate those pathways a little bit easier. And so we started the Carson Kolzik Foundation in 2004, and it was more of a, a, a local regional foundation here in Washington State. But then we also started Athletes Against Autism, which is a branch off of uh, Autism Speaks, myself, Scott Mellenby, Byron Defoe. Scott Mellenby was actually referred to by a buddy of mine because he had a son already with autism. And, and so that was a big resource that I had, and, and him and his wife really helped my wife and I out through those first few few months, few years. I mean, we went through some dark times. But anyway, so we established uh, we established Athletes Against Autism and tried to make it more of a national platform. And, you know, we were able to recruit Ernie Els on board. And, you know, obviously everybody knows success Ernie's had and what he's doing down in, in South Florida. But uh, yeah, I just, I feel being an athlete, you have a voice. And, you know, sometimes athletes use their voice in the wrong way. But I felt that I wanted to, to do it in a positive way and try to make a difference in, in people less fortunate. Oli, you sure have. And I'm curious, like, when you think about it all, and you're still writing so many chapters in your story and making such a big difference in, in so many ways, contributing to so many different things. When you think about your success in hockey as a community leader, if you had to boil it down to one or two things, what do you boil it down to? As far as being a leader in the community? Being a leader being successful, doing all your success? I mean, for me, it was just living in your beliefs, like what you believe in, being a good person, treating people, you know, the same way that you want to be treated. You know, again, realizing that, that we're fortunate in what we're doing and that it doesn't make me any better than a school teacher. It doesn't make me any better than, you know, the local waste management guy. It, it's, I was fortunate. There's a lot, a lot of people like me that just never got that opportunity. But again, it doesn't make me any better. And so as long as people live by that, you know, treating people the way you want to be treated, I think the world would be a better place. Oli, it sure will. This has been a ton of fun. I could ask you questions all day about your career and all the success that you've had on and off the ice. But thank you for spending a few minutes with me. And thank you for pulling the tarp. We'll have to talk again soon. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks. All right. Take care, Oli. 
Thank you for joining me this week. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you can catch all of our upcoming episodes. And if you are like me and want a world full of tart pullers, then leave a review to help others find us. You can also follow me on Twitter at Andrew H. Moses. That's Andrew H. Moses. And be sure to sign up for my email newsletter at everybodypullsthetarp.com slash newsletter. I'll share tips and insights to help you achieve maximum success and happiness. Today's a great day to pull the tarp. I am rooting for you. See you next time.